Okay, so Advent, speaking of children being brought into the world, um, we're talking about, uh, we're entering the season of Advent where, um, where we, we receive the, the um, infant, the baby, Jesus. We receive him. And, uh, and so we're going to break from Acts for the next four weeks and do a, a, like a, a little Advent sort of series. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 13. What I want to do today is I want to talk about this idea of leaning back. I want to come from, to that topic from John chapter 13. So John 13, verse 21. I'll read it and then I'll pray. I'll be reading from the NIV translation or the NIV or the version. Uh, John 13, 21. I'll read down to verse 29 and I'll pray. This probably is the strangest Advent text you've ever heard in your life, but hopefully we'll get to... We'll get to why. Uh, Verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to which of them he meant. I literally just lost my own place. Sorry. One of them, verse 23, thank you. The disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple, his disciple, and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some of them thought Jesus was telling him to go buy what was needed for the festival or to give some money to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for this church community, for all that they have poured into me and Ashley and Reality San Francisco. The fruit that goes out from this place is just uh, probably without measure. So thank you for their faithfulness. I know that I say this every single time I'm here, that you're not done. I keep hearing that. You're not done with them planting churches, sending missionaries all over the world. Their, their work must continue, and it shall. And so I pray a blessing upon them, God. May your spirit continue to call people from here. Would you give them continued spirit of intercession and prayer? Would you hear their prayers as they pray, as they wage uh, the spiritual battle from this place? We ask today that you would open up our eyes to see what you might want to show us today in our ears so that we can hear you, and ultimately our hearts that we might receive you. We pray this all in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're coming up into our ninth year birthday at Reality San Francisco in January, a church that you yourselves planted and birthed, and as you can imagine, ministry in San Francisco is not an easy thing. Last year, I took a sabbatical, a lot like the one Pastor Britt is on right now. And in reflecting back on these years of ministry in San Francisco, I think I would say I would summarize ministry in the city for me. 
I would summarize it like this. I tried, when I moved to San Francisco, with everything I had, with all of my capacities, to lean in. I tried to lean into teaching when I got there, which was really hard for me to do. I leaned into leadership. I leaned into the voice that I believe God had given me. I leaned into leading. I leaned into the opportunities that were before me. Almost every single opportunity that God laid before me, I leaned into. I leaned into community and making a sustainable life in San Francisco. And it's so hard to make a sustainable life in San Francisco. I leaned into a lot of things. I think that the message that we get from the majority of our culture especially in a city like San Francisco or in a city like L.A., and even in just general culture today, is to lean in. We're told to lean into our careers, into networking, into our 10-year plan, and plan our 10-year plan, and execute our 10-year plan, to lean into relationships and opportunities and the ministry and personal growth and leadership, lean into our family, all the while trying to lean into all the other things that we have going on in our life. Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, has a wildly popular book on women in the workplace called Lean In. And the message is that women need to lean into their careers because, as she says, men lean into their careers and women, women shouldn't be afraid of being ambitious. Now, here's the thing. Now, everyone's leaning in. Men are leaning in. Women are leaning in. And I think it's a good place in the future of our careers that women lean into their careers and women's equality in the workplace, for sure. However, with all of us leaning in, every single person, male, female, John gives us an enduring and vivid picture of what discipleship to Jesus looks like, and it is leaning back, not leaning in. In our text, it was the night of Jesus' betrayal. Jesus is enjoying the Last Supper meal with his disciples, giving them what would be the first communion meal. And after dinner, Jesus removes his outer garment, and he kneels down to wash his disciples' feet, an act that was reserved for slaves. And after, afterwards, they were lingering around the table. The table would have been in the shape of a, of a U, a capital U, and they would have been reclining on the outside, the perimeter of this table, There were no chairs. There were cushions. They would be leaning on their left arm or their elbow since their right hand was used for eating. So they were leaning down, leaning back. And as they were leaning around this table, the the center would have been reserved for the people who were serving the meal to come and bring the meal. So they're just lounging there afterwards. They sat there reclining. And Jesus starts to explain something. As they're having this meal, they're just enjoying each other's company Jesus says, one of you, one of you, 12 closest friends, one of you is going to betray me. I mean, this was right in the middle of this whole beautiful Last Supper scene. Jesus says, someone in this room is going to deceive me, and someone in this room is going to betray me. And the room gets incredibly intense. You thought meals for Thanksgiving were awkward with your family. Like, this is so awkward. Like, they're just, they're enjoying each other. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas is sitting there. Judas is sitting there with hatred in his heart. He's tired of Jesus. He's tired of Jesus' teachings. He's tired of Jesus' promises. He's sick of Jesus' way and even his life. And he finally decides to agree to help get rid of Jesus. Judas is plotting to betray Jesus. At this point, Jesus knows it. One mystical writer says this about betrayal. He says, 
Betrayal is more than separation or rejection. To betray is to use the secrets of a person's personal life, thoughts confided to a friend, and to turn against that person, to use their confided thought or words in order to hurt and defile them, to destroy a reputation. Judas betrayed Jesus. He knew the secrets of Jesus. He knew Jesus' thoughts. He even knew where Jesus would be that night. Think about this. Judas even knew that Jesus would go quietly and not put up a fight. That's how much Judas knew Jesus intimately. And Jesus, during this meal, is no longer able to contain his emotion or his anguish. He's sitting there, and he knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows it. And so it just, like, comes out of him. Someone's going to betray me. It says in verse 21, John 13, 21, Jesus was troubled in spirit, or literally that word is, he was in deep anguish, and he testified, I, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. It's like Jesus isn't emotionally able to hold on to this information anymore. Like he knows it and he can't hold on to it. I don't know if you've ever been that way in your own humanity where you can't emotionally hold on to a piece of information anymore from the people that you love. Like you're around them and you love them so much and you're holding on this information. You're like, I can't hold on to this anymore. I got to tell you this. This is exactly where Jesus was that night. I love you guys so much. I have to, someone's going to betray me here. And the disciples, they're shattered by this revelation. They're absolutely stunned by this. And maybe not so much by what Jesus said, but maybe the way that Jesus would have said it. Probably trembling, his voice quivering, his words told through tears. Jesus is not ice cold. He's not like, one of you is going to betray me. He's not ice cold. He's in deep anguish of spirit. He's... He's, he's choked up when he's saying this. I don't even know if he can look people in the eyes when he's saying this. And finally, what happens is that Judas leaves the room in the most strange transaction that I've, I think in the Bible. Jesus is like, someone's going to betray me. And then Peter says to the disciple, he's not named, by the way. Peter says to the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's right next to Jesus, hey, ask him who he's talking about. This is such a Peter move, by the way, right? Hey. Ask him who, who he's talking about. And the disciple whom Jesus loved is just like la- lounging there. We'll get there in a second. He's like, Jesus, who is it? And then Jesus, Jesus says, uh, I'll tell you who it is. I'm going to dip this piece of bread in a cup, and whoever I give this piece of bread to, that's who it is. Here you go, Judas. And Judas is like, thank you? And he eats it, and it's super weird. Everybody's like, what's happening? And then Judas is like, and he just leaves. He gets up and walks out. Everybody's like, what just happened? It's super, super strange. Now, when Judas finally leaves the room... John makes this comment. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now, why does John say it was night? Because it was night. You guys, right? I flew all the way to San Francisco for that. So, because it was night. But also... Not just that, but also because John loves to play with the light and dark metaphor. He does this from the very beginning of his book, John 1.4, in him was life, speaking of Jesus, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John loves these polarities, light 
and dark, day and night. And so he plays with these polarities throughout his book. And so here, when Jesus, who is the light of the world, is betrayed, John comments, and it was night. Why? Because it was night, but also because Judas was turning away from the light of the world and stepping into the deepest darkness and most cold place anyone has ever known. That's why. Judas was rejecting Jesus' love. It started by Judas losing trust in Jesus. It progressed to opposing Jesus. We have several accounts of Judas opposing Jesus. And then it culminated to outright rejection of Jesus' love. Like a, a complete rejection of the light of the world. Like, I reject you and I will betray you. And from that point, no light could come in anymore. He was in darkness. And so John says, he left the light of the world and it was night. Why? Because it was dark. And in that darkness, you make some of the worst decisions humans can ever make. But during this dark scene, we're given another polarity because John loves to do this. Another contrast to the darkness that Judas was in. And we get this in the unnamed disciple. We don't know who he is. The way the narrative is told, we don't know who he is. We all know who he is, though, right? He's John. But the way the narrative is told, we don't know who he is. We're only told it's the disciple whom Jesus loves. And as Judas is plotting betrayal, there's another disciple who's literally leaning back on Jesus' chest, who's so close to Christ in warm fellowship and warm intimacy. So there's this trust there in comfort. The text almost makes it looks like, look like as, um, John was there, and John actually gets closer to Jesus after Christ confesses his agony. Because it says that he's reclining next to Jesus at the very beginning of our text. And then it says that, that, that Jesus confesses his anguish. And then it says that, that the disciple leans back against Jesus. It's almost as if this disciple feels Jesus' heartbreak and leans back into him in loving intimacy. Like I said, we're not told who the disciple is next to Jesus. The person's not named. It just says the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I like because it actually could be any one of us. And so here's a polarity. Now, this is the polarity that John's playing with. Judas rejects Jesus' love. The beloved disciple absorbs Jesus' love. He draws near to it. He literally places his body next to Jesus' body. Now, these are extreme, but if you have ever read the writings of John, John is a black and white kind of person. And what John is saying is this. You are either moving away from Jesus' love into more and more rejection, or you are drawing ever nearer to Jesus and intimacy. That's what John's doing. You were either like Judas, moving further and further and further into the night, away from the light of the world, or you're like John, who is drawing closer and closer and closer into intimacy with Christ. That's it. Now, let's turn our attention to meditate on the image of this beloved disciple for a minute. Let's just just think about John, this beloved disciple for a minute. As they are reclining around this table, remember there are no chairs, they're just cushions, this disciple leans back on Jesus. It says that he's on Jesus' chest, or in some translations, 
he's on Jesus' bosom. Now, we don't use the word bosom anymore. I, want, I, don't, I, don't, I don't recommend we bring that word back, but it, that's just, we don't use that word. But if you have a Bible that says, he rested on Jesus' bosom, that's what was going on. And when you put your head upon someone else's chest, your ear is just above that person's heart so that you're able to hear their heartbeat. Think about that. The disciple whom Jesus loved is leaning back on Jesus. His head is on his chest. His ear is just above Christ's heart. And he's able to hear Jesus' heart beat. And with that single picture, with that image, you get John's ultimate image for discipleship. This is John saying, this is what discipleship to Jesus looks like. This is what it means. For John, a disciple of Jesus is someone who is leaning back on Jesus, hearing his heartbeat, and from that perspective, looking out into the world. That's John's idea of a disciple. A disciple is someone who's so close to Jesus in intimacy that his ear is right on his chest, and from that perspective, with the heartbeat of Christ in his ear, he's able to look out into the world. He sees the world. He sees what goes on in the world. He sees the darkness of the world from a place of being so close to Jesus' chest that he hears his heartbeat. One of my close friends who lives in Portland has a son named Moses. And Moses is 10 um, and loves to cuddle. He loves to lean back. The first time I spent significant time with Moses was in Hawaii a few years ago. They were there beforehand. My friend was on sabbatical in Hawaii, so he was there for like the whole month. My wife and I joined them a little later in Hawaii. And when we got there, they were already at the beach. And so I get there and that, and as soon as I get there, he runs up to me, come on, Dave, let's go play in the waves. And I literally had met Moses maybe one or two times before this. And so I, we, I run out, I'm playing in the ocean with them. I'm throwing him in the waves. He's like, oh my, we're having so much fun. And one time I picked him up and I threw him into a wave. He swam back and he swam like really, really fast. And he swam really close to me. He just like came up right into my face, just like right here. And he grabbed me and he goes, Dave, when we're done playing, can we go in the sand and cuddle? <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, we can talk to your parents. I don't know how that all plays out. But this kid just loves to just like get close. I, whenever I go over at my friend's house, like he just like sits on my lap, just like wants to cuddle all the time. I'm like, he's such a, this is this right there. That's the picture that we get from John of what a disciple looks like. That's, it starts there. Discipleship to Jesus starts with intimacy. It starts with nearness and closeness right, right up against Jesus' heart. That we would see our chaotic world from that place and from that perspective of leaning back on Jesus. That we're attuned to his heartbeat. And I would even say this. I would even add this. I think I would say that we are attuned to Jesus' blood pressure. I need this. I I can't tell you how many times over the last nine years. I can actually tell you three times. Three times over the last nine years, I went to the ER because of um, heart conditions that my doctor kept on saying, it's stress, go home. Last, at the end of it, right before my sabbatical last year, I went to the doctor right before my wife and I started traveling. And I said, I have, I there's something, I'm, I, there's something wrong with my heart, doctor. Like, there's something wrong with my heart. He did all the tests. He's like, nothing is wrong. You have a very healthy heart. 
you have to calm down and you have to manage your stress. And I said, could you give me a pill? He's like, no, I'm not. Get out of my office. I'm not giving you a pill for that. And what I learned during my sabbatical a year ago is that there is no pill for this. There is a posture for this. And this posture is leaning back on Jesus to where our blood pressure matches Jesus' blood pressure. Our heart is in sync with his heart. A disciple is one who sees the world with the sound of Jesus' heart in their ear. When you see the world, you see the chaos, if you watch the news or whatever, the insanity of our world, you see all of that with the sound of Jesus' heart in your ear. This is what God has ultimately taught me after years of hard ministry, leaning into everything that starting an endeavor entails. I mean, guys, the first eight years of the church, I, I, I worked myself to where it was unhealthy. And I have learned since sabbatical that I have to see the world as his disciples did. From a place where I'm so close to Jesus, I can hear his heart. And I think somewhere in the midst of pastoring Reality San Francisco, the first eight years, I lost sight of that. You could lose sight of this even in ministry, everyone. I mean, Judas was a, a close follower of Jesus. Remember that. For me, I had my eyes and my ears pressed up to my church and their needs in the city and its complexity and what I thought it needed and what I thought everyone wanted and what I thought everyone needed. See, when you walk in close intimacy with Jesus, you come to realize that what a city needs and what a church needs are pastors and leaders who are at least close enough to Jesus to hear his heart so that they can lead the congregation to that place. So when the church is like running around the city, like, oh my gosh, and you're, you're like right up against Jesus. Guys, he's over here. He's right here. Everyone come near. Let's get close to Jesus' chest. This is the picture that I want to, I want like seared into my mind saying to my church, to my family, to my city, if you want to gain perspective on what's going on in this world, this is where it comes from. It's being this close to Jesus. See, this disciple's location is probably intended to tell us something about him. He's reclining near Jesus' chest. And this is, this is such a big deal. Okay, if you, if, this is where knowing Greek really helps. Now, I don't know Greek, but I know people who know Greek. <laughs> so this is where knowing Greek really helps. Where the disciple was in relation to Jesus is exactly where Jesus was in relation to God, according to John's prologue. Let me say that again, because this is, this is, this is, this is, the, this is, this is it right here. Where the disciple was in relation to Jesus was, is exactly where Jesus was in relation to God, according to John's prologue. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, as, and, in, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, this actually is best captured in the Old King James Version. Does anyone still read Old King James? Come on. I know there's, oh, a lot. See, I like this. I say this to my congregation, one hand goes up. I like it. Old King James. This is the best described in Old King James. This is what it says in Old King James. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, 
He has declared him. So what John is saying is that no one has seen God at any time, but the son who comes from the very bosom of the father, the very heart, close, intimacy, he's made him known. Okay, now look at John 13, 23 in Old King James. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This is the same word. The bosom of the father and the bosom of Leaning on Jesus' bosom is the exact same word in Greek, meaning that the disciple is as intimate with Jesus as Jesus is with the Father. Now, if that's too strong for you, you're like, whoa, whoa, I think that's kind of blasphemous. Let me back up, okay? John is at least saying this. This disciple relates to Jesus as Jesus relates to the Father. This is what John is saying. This is John, these are John's words. This disciple is as least close to Jesus as Jesus was, meaning the relationship was the same, intimacy. The reason why Jesus was able to make known the Father was because he was close to the Father. Intimate, community, trinity, mutual love and submission, nearness, forever, eternity. At the, at the core of ultimate reality is relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the reason why Jesus is able to make the Father known is because he's that close with him. He's that intimate with him. So when you come to me, you're like, how's Ashley doing? I can tell you intimately how Ashley's doing. I know exactly how Ashley's doing. Why? Because I can make her known because I know her. John is that close with Jesus. Now, what John's also saying, by the way, this is kind of, this is gangster. John is saying, the reason why I can write a letter about Jesus and the reason why I can make Jesus known is because I was that close to him. The reason why Jesus can make the Father known because he was that close to the Father. The reason why I can make Jesus known is because I was that close to Jesus. That's pretty bad. So John is saying, I can write this letter, and I can tell you all of, and John, John's at the end of his life, by the way, when he's writing this letter. I can tell you all about this because I was right, I was in his bosom. That's a nod, by the way, to how he started the book. And Jesus was from the Father's bosom. John's like, I'm that close with Jesus. I'm that intimate with Jesus. I couldn't make him known. So what this means is that, and this is, by the way, this is a picture for all of us. The implications for me as a pastor and for you as followers of Jesus are ca- that are called to make Jesus known is that, that Jesus is being that close to the Father was able to reveal God, to declare God, to make God known. For the beloved disciple, it means the same thing. And this is the key to Advent. Intimacy with Jesus has revelational relevance. Now, revelational is not a word. I can make up words as a pastor. That's just what I part of what I get to do. Intimacy with Jesus has revelational relevance, which means your nearness to Jesus makes Jesus known. The reason why we're celebrating Advent is the coming of Christ into our world and thus making God known. His followers are called to do the same thing. We make Jesus known. And the question is, how do we make Jesus known? And the answer is by being close to Jesus. By being so close that we hear his heart, we can make Christ known as we know him. Now, let me get really practical. What does leaning back require? So for the remainder of my time, I just want to get really practical because that was like, might have been a little theological. might have been like, I kind of with you. I think you're just telling me to be close to Jesus. Thank you for doing that. Because let me just get really practical. How, what is, what is required here? Number one, write this down. What is required for leaning back on Jesus. Number one, you have to show up. You have to show up. Ronald Rollheiser, one of my favorite writers over the last several years, writes this on his book on prayer. He says, 
Let me, I'll explain this to you because you might not agree with this quote at first. There is no bad way to pray, and there is no one starting point for prayer. All the great spiritual masters offer only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer, and you have to show up regularly. This is wise. There's no bad way to pray. What he means by that is this. You can pray sitting down. You can pray standing up. You can pray on your knees. You can pray out loud. You can pray in your head. You can pray with worship music on. You can pray in silence. You can pray on a walk. You can pray in your bed. There is no bad way to pray. Here's the only rule. You have to show up. And you have to show up regularly. You have to show up in prayer regularly. You have to show up with intimacy with God and for intimacy with God regularly. I have clinically off the charts ADD. Clinically. Like, just found this out when I moved to San Francisco. Didn't know this my entire life. Would have been helpful mom and dad, but whatever. (laughs) Go to a therapist and he has me take a test. And then at the end of the test, he's like, you have like off the, not off the charts, because it's literally, that's not technical. Like you have in the top five percentile, whatever, ADD. I was like, what? I didn't, and I'm just wiggling around. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) Okay. I'm distracted by the thought of being distracted and what I'll do when I get distracted. (laughs) That's, that's how my brain works. So when I say show up regularly, this is hard for me. Some of you guys, you're like, well, you're a pastor. You know how to do this. You like write books on this stuff, whatever. Like, it's so hard. I, have a, I sit down and I'm like, okay, well, if I get distracted, what do I do? Well, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to repeat this prayer over and over again. What prayer is it again? I don't know. No. What prayer do I want to do? Like, this, that kind of thing. And like, it's 30 minutes later, I'm like, wait, did I, was I praying? I don't know. That, that is how it goes for me, Okay. During my time away, I journaled, during my sabbatical, I journaled that my single biggest weakness in prayer is regularity. So when I say this, I say this because it becomes, it comes really hard for me. What I've learned is that you have to show up to Jesus' chest regularly. And what I mean by that is daily at least. As you grow in your disciple to Jesus, it might be fixed hour, it might be three times a day. But you have to start the discipline. Have you ever seen the movie Fifty First Dates? Drew Barrymore, Adam Sandler, classic, classic Adam Sandler movie. Drew Barrymore has short-term memory loss, and she can't remember one day to the next. And all the new people she meets, she can't remember them. So she falls in love with Adam Sandler's character. This is the movie, by the way. And by the end of the movie, in order for her to progress and move on in her life, she's given this video that she watches every single morning when she wakes up. And it details her life, what happened to her, how she fell in love with Adam Sandler's character, and the life that she now lives. And every morning she goes through this emotional roller coaster realizing who she is. What I realized is that that is my life. I will have the most amazing day with Christ, incredible day with Christ. I will wake up the next day going, Who am I? What am I? And, I, and I, I don't remember the day before. I don't remember my time. with. I don't wake up going, oh my gosh, I'm going to continue my walk with God today like from yesterday. I just forget it. I forget. Something happens when I sleep. It's like all that's erased. No matter how good my day with God was. Now, maybe this is different when I'm 50. I just turned 40. It hasn't changed yet. Maybe when I'm 50, it'll change. Or maybe it'll get a lot worse. I don't know. You can tell me. But what I have to, what I have to do every single morning is what Drew Barrymore does. I have to... Sit down with God, pop in the tape, and remember who I am in Christ, 
what Christ has done for me by redeeming me, what it looks like to walk in fellowship with God and obedience with him today. I do that every single day. I don't just wake up. I actually tried this experiment once. I'm, I'm not going I'm I'm to wake up for, I think it was like, I tried to do it a week. I got two days into it. Or I'm going to wake up and I'm just going to go about my day without like, spending time alone with God. And I'll grab my phone, and I'll look at my phone, and then I'll have my coffee, and then I'll run off to work and see. And I, I, I was crumbling. Couldn't do it. I need to reset everything. Who am I? What has Christ done for me? What am I here doing? This is what I have to do every single day. And I have to ask myself the questions like, was my heart warmed? Was it calmed? Was it set to the pace and the blood pressure of Jesus? Was my identity recalled? Do I know who I am, who God is, and who I am in light of who God is, and, his, and being a child in his world? And it was my life directed. Do I know what I'm supposed to be doing today? So you have to show up. That's how you gain intimacy with Christ. You have to show up. Secondly, number two, write this down. You must put away distraction. We have these th- new things called phones that we keep everywhere. Now, if you are a little bit, um, I don't know, see, I think you guys called them seasoned saints. Is that what you guys called them during the announcement? Seasoned. I find that the addiction of phones is no respecter of persons. doesn't matter if you're young and you're a kid and you're addicted to watching people game on YouTube or if you're older and you're addicted to Candy Crush or whatever you do. I don't know. Like whatever it is, there. Phones are no respecter of persons. It is addictive no matter how old or young you are. What I found is that, imagine the scene. John is there leaning up against Jesus, and they're having this moment, and all of a sudden, John's phone just starts blowing up in his cloak. Just notifications, phone calls. Jesus would be like, um, thank you. Are you going to get that? Like, now we're all distracted now. Now we're all pulled out from this moment. One of my favorite sayings when I was on sabbatical was, let's just not know. That, I've, I've come here for this wisdom. I, I want to impart to you this wisdom. For you to have the, the okayness to say, let's just not know. Over sabbatical, I got a new phone number. When I was gone, I deleted all my social media, all my email, everything. My phone was basically a phone. Can you imagine that? A phone was a phone. That was it. That's all. And I got a new number. had like a, uh, a burner phone. Like the only like two people knew the number to. That was it. My phone was just a phone. And you know how when you're having a great conversation with someone and something random needs to be fact-checked and someone needs to grab their phone and check the fact? Like who, 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 what other movie was Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler in? Uh, it was 51st Day and this other movie, right? Oh, I don't really remember. Oh, you know what? I'll do, I'll just, I'll grab my phone. And then they grab their phone and they're, they're like lost for eight minutes. And they're on Facebook and all of a sudden they're watching YouTube's like, how did I get here? I don't know. What I would do is I, I would go, oh, you know what? Let's just, let's just not know. What does that feel like? Not knowing something. Like let that, let's just let that sit. I don't know. It's okay not to know. You don't have to know. And watching people kind of get nervous, like, well, what do you mean? I could know, but you don't have to know. Let's just, let's just not know. And my wife would go, we'd be in Italy, and we'd be talking or, about something, and she'd be, she would say, what about that thing? I'm like, let's just not know. She's like, stop saying that. I want to know. I'm like, I don't. Let's just not know. And so what, what I would start to do this all over my sabbatical, but there was this one question that I still, that took a long time to solve, is like, um, why haven't you ever seen a baby pigeon? 
And so I would walk around to people and go, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? They're like, no, no. Wait a minute. I've never seen a baby pigeon. I'm like, exactly. And they grab their phone. I'm like, no, no, no. Let's just not know. The reason is you start gaining, I hate pigeons, but I start gaining respect for them because they know how to keep secrets. Because you see baby everything. You see baby cats and dogs. and I mean, imagine how many pigeons you see and dogs you see. You always see puppies. You always see baby kittens. You always see baby animals that you see, but you never see baby pigeons. I have a theory that they come straight from hell, already full grown, <laughs> out from the ground, just flying and just like, here, we're here. I, that's what I think. And so I would go around everywhere. I would, I would have a meal over sabbatical and we would just be, some, that topic would come up. Let's just not know. I'm like, hey, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? Like, no, and they would just get freaked out, like, oh my gosh, I'm kind of terrified now of pigeons. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> now, if you have a phone and you're like, I want to look it up, don't look it up. Don't ruin it. <laughs> Carry that with you. Carry it around until you find the answer to it. I found, we found the answer in our staff, but I, won't, I don't have time for that right now. But anyway, so here's the thing. Our culture is a very powerful narcotic for good and for bad. The good is that a narcotic soothes and protects against raw pain. Our culture has within it the very kind of thing from medicine to entertainment to shield us from suffering. And some of that's really good. But a narcotic can also be bad, especially when it comes to escaping reality, when we're trying to escape reality. Our culture narcotics shield us from having to face the deeper issues of life, faith, forgiveness, mortality, even morality. Things like our phones and entertainment can be set against the interior life, keeping us so preoccupied and so distracted that we lose focus of the deeper things. What has been created in the tech industry in my town has made our lives wonderfully efficient and has also conspired against depth of our souls. We have become so attentive to so many things that we aren't attentive to anything, particularly what's deepest inside of us. When we start feeling that hunger pain that's deeper than hunger, We usually just grab our phones, play a game, get on Facebook, buy something on Amazon. That was put there by God for you to contemplate the deeper things in life. If you are to show up to God, you have to put away distraction. I stopped sleeping with my phone a few years ago. I do not sleep next to my phone. Sleeps in in a different room. I don't even attend to my phone until after I've spent time with God. I'm not perfect at this. I'd say 90% of the time. You have to, I had to make these really hard decisions like this phone will not rule my life. I will wake up. I want to wake up like Jesus woke up. Jesus woke up. Well, actually, remember his disciples in Mark chapter, I think it's chapter one or two. Everybody's looking for Jesus and he's with the father. Like Jesus, everyone's looking for you. You have all these people. You have all these emails to attend to. Jesus is like, we're leaving. The father wants us to go over here. Most of us wake up with like, hey, you have all these people that want you, email, all this stuff. Where I want to hear from God. God, direct my life. Lastly, you need to let go. You need to let go. I can't see the clock. Where's the clock? Oh, it's, it's gone. Am I out of time? I don't know. Okay. We need to let go. Guys, let go of the time. Let's just let go of whatever time it is right now. Now, there, there are a lot of visionary leaders in here. Many of you can see a future life or a future world and order your world to make that world happen. There are many in here who know how to take objects and numbers and codes and materials and relationships and opportunities, even whole companies, 
and bring them under your own agenda you have for shaping the world according to your own desires and purposes. And some of those purposes are great, even godly. And when you go to God, in the same way you attempt to order your world, you attempt to use God to produce your own transformation. And you try to manipulate God to bring about the changes that you think that you need. And so you write down a few things that you want God to fix in you or to address with you. And so every time you go to God, you're like, God, fix these things. Transform me in this way. And what you really need to do is you need to release control of your relationship with God to God. This takes time being alone. I'm not an introvert. So whenever introverts talk about solitude and silence, I think, you know what? You just like being alone. You're an introvert. But I'm an extrovert. And I love being around people. I love being around people so much that my favorite thing to do to be alone is to be alone together with a bunch of strangers in a coffee shop. I'm like, I'm alone, but I'm around all these people. But when I'm really, really alone, like really, really alone, this is where things start opening up in my life. This is the thing that happened to me when I was on sabbatical. I did a, I did a silent retreat by myself, and it was like a detox for me. I literally felt like I was coming off of a really bad drug. And the drug was an addiction to stuff, people, things, distractions. And I was just there alone with God. And in silence, God revealed to me all kinds of stuff that he wanted to do in my life. The things that I was trying to control, I had to give up control. One of the books that I read over my sabbatical was by Robert Mulholland, a very um, important work on spiritual formation. He says, the practice of silence is the radical reversal of our cultural tendencies. Silence is bringing ourselves to a point of relinquishing to God our control of our relationship with God. Silence is the reversal, is a reversal of the whole processing, possessing, controlling, grasping dynamic of trying to maintain control of our own existence. Silence is the inner act of letting go. And then on my sabbatical, during that same time, I read this book on leadership, and Ruth Haley Barton says this, probably one of the best books I've ever read on leadership, And she said, without the regular experience of being received and loved by God in solitude and silence, we are vulnerable to the kind of leadership that is driven by profound emptiness that we are seeking to fill through performance and achievement. And then I was struck with the fact how much of my life is really just trying to make up for something that I feel is lacking. And how do I spend time with Jesus to know that that is where I find my identity and only there? See, maybe Judas was following Jesus to try to control Jesus. Maybe Judas was driven by such profound emptiness that when he started to realize that Jesus wouldn't bend to his will, he decided to get rid of Jesus. But the enduring picture of discipleship is leaning back on Jesus, showing up without distraction, letting go of our control of whatever happens to Jesus. Our world has been absolutely insane the last several years. But I'll tell you, the only way to get true perspective of what's going on and to have any real capacity to do something about it is from a place of leaning back on Jesus. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. God, thank you. Let's just be uh, still for a second. Go ahead. We can go ahead and get the lights off now and... Uh, if you would, if, you, if you'd like to, would you, and, and just a posture of openness to God, like, yeah, I just want to be open to you, um, would you just turn your hands up like this, just open your hands to God? Lord, um, we just want to be really open to you right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. 
scriptures, the truth of who you are, how gentle you are, how nothing, we, we just, you don't, we don't move from this place, God. 2,000 years ago, John leaning up against you with all our technology, with all the stuff, all our human advancement, all the, all the places we can go, we can fly to the other side of the world, we can even go to outer space, and we, we have the world in our own pockets. With all the technology, there's no way that we can optimize or hack the fact that we just need to be with you. We just need to be with you, God. Come, Holy Spirit. 